Welcome to another episode of Podbest Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Sean Spear. I'm a Monk Senior Fellow uh, here at the McDonald Laurier Institute covering tax, fiscal, and other public policy issues. And we have a real treat for you today. I'm pleased to be joined by Tyler Cowan, uh, the Holbert L. Harris Chair of Economics at George Mason University and Chairman and Faculty Director of the Mercatus Center at GMU. He's also the co-author of the popular economics blog, Marginal Revolution, and co-founder of the online educational platform, Marginal Revolution University. Tyler is the host of the podcast, Conversations with Tyler, with diverse guests, including David Books, Ben Sass, Paul Romer, Martina Namatilova, and Canadian author Margaret Atwood later this year. And he's most recently authored a new book called Stubborn Attachments, A Vision for a Free Society that's earned praise in a wide range of circles. Thank you for joining us today, Tyler. My pleasure. You released Stubborn Attachments late last year. Why don't we begin with the question that I know all authors like. Why don't you talk about the book's thesis and why you wrote it? Stubborn Attachments is a defense of a free society. The book is pro-economic growth. It's pro-capitalism. It suggests we should think about the future more seriously. And it's all about the power of compound returns. So a society that has a higher rate of sustainable economic growth after even just a few decades, we'll be much richer, much better off than a society with a lower rate of economic growth. And the book tries to unpack the implications of that. Uh, you, you argue that policymakers and the general public need to adopt a much longer view than currently informs and shapes our decision making. In effect, you're saying that too often we're prepared to harm long-term growth in the name of short-termism. How do we risk short-termism in our public policy? Are you in favor of institutional reforms such as balanced budget legislation or tax expenditure limits or other means to try to orient our politics and orient our public policy uh, to, to the long term? Right now, so much of the debate in politics, it's about equity or it's about political correctness or it's about some other set of values. I think most of political debate should be quite simply about economic growth. So that's the first thing we should do. Now, you asked me two specific questions about pieces of fiscal legislation. If I take my own country, the United States, right now we have massive debt and deficits. We are hemorrhaging revenue. Uh, we need to be on a sustainable fiscal path again. But we're too far gone to have something like a balanced budget amendment. Uh, we need to start at much simpler steps, which is just stop being crazy and actually take the problem seriously at all. Well, as, as you know, uh, Canada has learned that lesson the hard way in the 1990s. Uh, McDonald-Lawrence Institute has written extensively about Canada's experience with fiscal reform, including a series uh, last year with partners at the American Enterprise Institute to try to bring the lessons of Canada's experience to, to Washington. I'm afraid, Tyler, uh, not only is there not evidence that it's being picked up in Washington, uh, there are growing concerns that uh, those lessons are being forgotten here in Canada. I'd be remiss, I guess, if I didn't ask about the current shutdown. Uh, your sentence, both about the, the, the substance of this narrow question that is the subject of, of debate in Washington, but more fundamentally, do you think that there needs to be reforms around budgeting to try to minimize these types of uh, political episodes? In the United States, we need to do so many things better. I don't think marginal procedural reforms to budgeting are the answer. So many years, we really don't even pass a budget because we can't agree. So the government shutdown is just like the logical development of a previous tendency. Rather than passing a budget, you just glue together some pieces on the old budget. So the idea that the legislature and executive can't agree, you're seeing that in the UK now with failed Brexit. You're seeing it in the United States. The shutdown as we speak is in day number 33. 
the problem is a very deep one that our Congress does not want accountability and it punts on decisions, but then it wants a claim back when something happens that it doesn't like. It's unwilling to just stand up and defend what it thinks is correct. As I read Stubborn Attachments, I wondered a bit about Daniel Bell's book, The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, and more recently, uh, Tucker Carlson's uh, monologue that went viral. What would you say to those who might argue that your emphasis on growth maximization may be its own, may ha have embedded in its own undoing? That is to say, focus on hyper-efficiency embeds the seeds of its own demise in the form of economic unrest, cultural decline, and, and political upheaval. Well, politics has become weirder in the United States and many other countries, but this is during a time of declining growth rates. So five or 10 year moving averages of the rate of economic growth, they've looked quite bad for much of the Western world. Uh, so the problem is not too much growth, but rather too little. We've had a productivity slowdown, wage stagnation. People start thinking in terms of zero sum, negative sum. When the growth rate is higher, positive sum thinking is easier to manage. Uh, one of the potential threats to a growth maximizing agenda may be that it produces dislocation for different industries, regions, and individuals. There's an ongoing debate about the right policy mix to respond to dislocation, namely whether it ought to come in the form of supports for individuals or places. Do you have views on the contours of an effective strategy to respond to economic dislocation, including, for instance, if policymakers were to take your advice and focus on, on growth maximization? In earlier American history, and to some extent Canadian history, if things went wrong, you always had the frontier and you always had the option of moving to a richer and more productive city. Today, you don't have the frontier. Maybe that's not coming back. But due to restrictions on building, it costs so much to move into Manhattan, San Francisco, most of Los Angeles, that the city as a means of upward mobility, essentially that is over. We need to bring that back we can do that by deregulating building. I'm not a huge fan of paying people money to stay where they are when probably they should be more mobile, but don't blame the people. We've made it hard for them to leave. Uh, on another subject, there's an ongoing debate uh, in the United States, but really across uh, the Western world about whether contemporary populism is driven primarily by economic or cultural forces. It seems to me that understanding the cause of political unrest is essential to determining how best our politics and policy ought to respond. What do you think about the causes of contemporary populism and what does it mean for public policy? This may be a somewhat separate question, but I think in many nations, immigration has caused a backlash and I think redefining of gender roles. So if you look, what's the group of people that dislikes Trump the most? By far, it's educated women. So Trump stands in for some earlier notion of gender roles. Men should be masculine in some particular way. And the most vitriolic debates, say on Twitter or social media, what people get upset about the most, the Kavanaugh hearings in the U.S., uh, they're issues of gender. So I think a lot of what's going on is a battle, some group of women trying to claim more space for a very different vision of gender relations and other forces fighting back. And I think that's much bigger than, say, economic slowdown, though economic slowdown is a factor. That's interesting. This evening, you'll be speaking about the new economy and some of the, the trends, both uh, in technology and, and, of course, how they manifest themselves in our labor markets. In Canada, about 37% of those between 25 and 64 don't have post-secondary. The number is higher in the United States. How should policymakers think about economic opportunity for those with those post-secondary education who... Uh, it seems, are, are facing less and less demand in the labor market in this new economic context. 
Vocational training needs to expand in the United States in particular. K through 12 schools need to be better. It should be more doable to go without a college degree. Right now, if you don't have one, a lot of employers assume you're not that smart or not that involved. That's really not necessarily the case, uh, but it should be that K through 12 is more demanding and more substantive. I think we can manage that, but it's not really yet quite happening. Yes. Incidentally, in Canada, uh, Tyler, one of the challenges that we're facing, or at least it's being exposed in recent years, is the role that our energy sector has played in hoovering up a lot of those without post-secondary education who may have been uh, dislocated from other parts of the economy, but who have found uh, ample opportunity in the, in the energy sector. Do you, do you have a sense of the extent to which the explosion in shale gas and other parts of the natural resource economy in the United States may play an important role in, in providing opportunity for those without post-secondary education? I think fracking will be automated more and more. So that's not really the answer. The answer is higher productivity in service sector jobs. With respect to Canada, you've been both super lucky and super unlucky. You have made so many things that China wants. So income growth in Canada has been better than for most OECD nations over the last 20 years. That's the good news. The bad news is China's probably going into a severe slowdown. You saw some of that a few years ago as mineral prices declined. Uh, price of oil probably is going to stay low. So I don't think that's a way out for Canada either. Uh, the ways in which you've done better than other Western nations are probably coming to an end. I'm, I'm not worried about Canada, but uh, this comparative advantage you've had, it seems to me those days are over. Yeah, it's a sober thought for policymakers and, of course, those uh, who follow the McDonald-Lorient's work. Uh, I have a penultimate question. I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't ask you about uh, the American politics. I won't, I'll refrain from asking your views about the president. But for those of us observing from Canada, uh, we have to ask the question, what, what do you think about the current state of American politics? Do you think there's a path forward? Is that come in the form of, of federalism? Where, where are there reasons to be optimistic that Amer American politics will work its way through uh, its current dysfunction? I'm not sure I can avoid giving you my view on our current president. I will be happy and relieved when it's over. But that said, I don't think it's nearly as bad as most people do. We have strong institutions. The judiciary has stayed independent. The Mueller investigation is being completed. For most people in the United States, life is fine. Employment is quite high. People who do not live in particular coastal belts they don't even notice that Donald Trump is president other than what they see in the media. And that is in many ways a more real perception than what you will hear from intellectuals or people in the media. So I worry about the decreased reliability of our foreign alliances. Of course, how we've treated Canada and other countries is part of that. But to me, this is eminently survivable. Uh, but we are our own worst enemy, which is hardly news in American history. And we need to just put things back together a bit and realize there are fundamental things in the world changing and we can't just keep our heads stuck in the sand and we need to come to terms with some of them that maybe we can't have everything we want and there aren't just free lunches and we need to make some tough choices. I said, Tyler, that that was my penultimate question, but if I may just sure. slide another one in in, in, in response to, to your comments there. You talked a bit about what has become characterized as the politics of geography, the idea that there seems to be sharp partisan divides across geographical lines in the United States. You only have to look at the structure or the location of caucus members, both in the Republican caucus in Congress and, of course, the Democratic caucus in Congress. It doesn't seem to be quite the um, 
geographical intermingling of our politics that we've seen in the past. I think you mentioned you've mentioned before that Washington is one of the few places where we find a kind of roughly 50-50 Republican Democrat. First of all, you just not with th- the people, but with the intellectuals. Yeah. yeah. Just your thoughts on on that uh, geographical divide and whether it's a, whether it's a problem, and if so, what can be done to to try to bridge the political divide rooted in geography. Democrats love to cluster in urban areas. It's a huge problem for Democrats. It means they will never control the U.S. Senate the way the Senate is structured, that it's two senators from every state, and a lot of states are not very uh, urbanized. I don't think we're going to fix that anytime soon. Ideally, what you would like is for the Senate to be uh, more competitive in some way, and I think what we're going to see is continued gridlock and unwillingness of our federal government to face up to most of the key problems. My final question, I think, is, is on a subject near to your heart, and that is philanthropy. Uh, you're, you're donating the book's proceeds, that is, uh, stubborn attachments to a small-scale entrepreneur in Ethiopia. You're also involved in a, in a new philanthropic venture, and you generally talk about the, the benefits of philanthropy. This, of course, is not a universally held view. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Robert Wright's new book, Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Could Do Better. It's just one example of uh, increasingly broad-based critiques of, of philanthropy. Why do you think so many people, including intellectuals, are hostile and suspicious of public philanthropy? And what can we do to change people's minds? A lot of philanthropy is too bureaucratic. It's too conservative. It's too risk-averse. It's too concerned with measuring outcomes and removing risk. The golden age of American philanthropy earlier in the 20th century, people took a lot of chances. They didn't have massive staffs overseeing every decision. Uh, My own project is called Emergent Ventures, and I call it zero fixed cost philanthropy. So the money we raise through donations, all of that goes out to people. I do the main work of evaluating proposals. There are no layers of staff that say no before proposals get to me. And uh, so far, we've made about 20 grants, and I'm very excited by this program. May I just ask a follow-up sure, question? Yeah. Uh, as, as you no doubt know, in, in center-right circles in the United States and in Canada, there's a tendency to talk about uh, how best to reinvigorate uh, civil society. The idea that before the, the establishment of the welfare state, uh, many of the functions now carried out by government were carried out by civil society institutions. And of course, at some level, uh, that idea is appealing to me. Uh, the question, of course, is how how do we reverse the trends that we've witnessed over the past several decades? Do we have the means to reinvigorate those civil society institutions, and what role can philanthropy play in doing so? Well, I think North American civil society is still pretty strong. You work where you work. I'm at a research center, Mercatus. We're both part of civil society. I don't agree with everything that goes on, and I do see too much bureaucratization. My main worry about the decline of civil society is secularization and the decline of churches in both of our countries. I don't know how to stop, reverse, or undo that. But just the institutions, there's never been more human talent in the nonprofit arena. I'm ultimately pretty bullish on it, but we're doing a lot of things wrong, and we need to get our act in order. Well, uh, thank you so much, Tyler, for joining us on uh, Pod Bless Canada. It's been a great honor to have you on, on the program and to share your thoughts and experiences, including, of course, uh, Stubborn Attachments, which for those who haven't had a chance to read it, comes at a, a critical time as, as policymakers grapple with fundamental questions about efficiency and e- equity, and what aims ought to underpin our politics. So, so thank you so much, uh, Tyler, for, for joining us today. Thank you. And don't forget, podcasts are civil society.